You're listening to SBS News. The company was only nervous when FIFA came to inspect. They would ring the fire alarm on purpose. And then, when all the workers gathered at the assembly point, they would turn off the alarm, make everyone get on buses and drive us away from the stadium. On the day shift, there were between 4,000 5,000 workers. All of us were removed from the site and sent to our accommodation. They practically emptied the stadium. The company would tell FIFA that we had all gone for lunch. I'm Andrew Chappelle, and this is a controversial podcast, one that's recorded on the lands of the oldest continuing cultures on Earth. SBS acknowledged the traditional custodians of country and their connections and continuous care for the skies, lands and waterways throughout Australia. The FIFA World Cup final will take place in Qatar's biggest stadium. Lusail Stadium's design was inspired by the interplay of light and shadow that characterizes a traditional lantern. It's an architectural marvel that cost more than a billion dollars Australian, one the young men who built it should be proud of. In this episode, we're talking about the army of workers who made this all possible, the light and shadow found in a labor system that's far bigger than Qatar. Hundreds of thousands of migrant workers leave their home countries to work in the Gulf, despite grueling working conditions and the risk of exploitation by unsavory employers. In return for their labor, Nepalese migrant workers send home billions of dollars in remittances each year, roughly a quarter of Nepal's GDP. That's where we're starting, and I've turned to Equidem, a human rights and labor rights charity, for help. They spoke to nearly a thousand workers employed at the eight stadiums, who described being made to work long hours under the constant fear they would lose their jobs. Anish is a massive Argentina fan who helped build Lucille Stadium, and he's owed thousands of dollars in unpaid wages and illegal fees. I came to Qatar because of family problems. Our situation was bad and I had to look after them. I came here carrying this dream. I wanted to improve my family's situation. This is how it is. We are financially weak. When you struggle to put enough food on the table, you have to do something. You cannot find any work here. There are no employment opportunities. I went to Qatar in March 2019 and came back in December 2021. Apart from the loan I took to pay the recruitment fee, my family had other debts. These totaled around 700,000 rupees, or nearly 8,000 Australian dollars. I couldn't even consider going back to Nepal. If I did return, they would take our land. We would become homeless. We would be happier if he could find a job and work in Nepal rather than going to the Gulf and sweating blood. But what can we say? We can't say, don't go, stay with us. It doesn't help. He has to survive. He has to work and earn money. We have to let him go. I got the job through a local agent. We were told not to worry. 
and that all our expenses would be reimbursed as soon as we arrived. This was all a lie. He told me it was a stadium job and the company was nice. He said it was a huge company that paid on time with food and accommodation. They said the company would reimburse all expenses incurred while going to Qatar. He said we will have this salary, 800 plus 200 or 300. This was the fixed salary. He said we would get three hours of overtime duty and we'd get paid extra for it. Food and accommodation were free. All workers working at the stadium would get 200 extra. He said we could go to Qatar without a single worry. I couldn't tell my parents what was really going on. They'd worry about their son. And if I told them the full story, they would get sad. It's okay if I am unhappy, but I can't see my family sad. When I didn't get the agreed salary, I became nervous. I was distressed. I'd agreed to 800 Qatari reals plus an extra 200 reals. Didn't get that. Food was supposed to be free, but our salary was deducted. I don't know if the company kept it in their own pockets or what they did, but they didn't give it to us. My job was AC work. I had to climb quite high to work. Nepali workers had to go to that height. We're brave. We worked there when others were afraid of such heights. The company said, Nepali workers who will go there, I'll give you more overtime. We never got this extra payment. It was all a lie. I did not get paid for the work I did. It was very hot in Qatar. If it crossed 50 degrees, all work was stopped. If the company got caught making workers work in high heat, their license would get revoked. March to May the temperature is above 40. I got to experience up to 52 degrees. I used to be drenched with sweat, like it was pouring with rain. If you didn't drink enough water, you fainted. But we weren't provided with enough to drink. The water we were given was almost 90% ice. We told them it was impossible to drink that water and asked them why they gave it to us like that. They said they froze it because if they provided normal water, the workers would drink more of it. Accidents are bound to happen in such sites. We don't know much about worker deaths. Police come in and take the body. I do not know what actions they take against the company. The company doesn't disclose the real reason of the accident. When we complained, they punish us, take action against us, make us sign a warning letter. When time passed, we realized the complaints didn't do anything. All hope disappeared. You have a different feeling when all your hopes disappear. They hoist the flags according to the temperature. When there is a red flag, safety does not allow workers to work. But when the engineers came, they threatened us saying, why aren't you working? work or else I'll cut your salary. One day my friend got called by the Supreme Committee. He was afraid to speak up. I told him I would back him up if anything happened. I helped him make a video too. I told him what concerns he should raise with the Supreme Committee. After he did that, the company cut his salary by 15 days. Because he spoke up, his salary was cut. We were not heard. The committee said the company would get a warning letter, but nothing was implemented the company was only nervous when FIFA came to inspect. They didn't seem to care about the Supreme Committee, despite the committee's actions against the company. The company had to email me, and I had to email me. 
The Supreme Committee used to arrive for an inspection and email the company to send the listed workers to the hall. Everyone was called one by one. One time, a group of us went to make a complaint. We became quite loud. After the inspection, they spoke to us and said that if we did this again, they would send us back home. The company was only nervous when FIFA came to inspect. They would ring the fire alarm on purpose. And then, when all the workers gathered at the assembly point, they would turn off the alarm, make everyone get on buses and drive us away from the stadium. On the day shift, there were between 4,000 and 5,000 workers. All of us were removed from the site and sent to our accommodation. They practically emptied the stadium. The company would tell FIFA that we had all gone for lunch. Lusail Stadium will host the final of football's most important international tournaments at the end of this year. My name is Tom Kennedy. I'm a journalist for SBS. I tracked down... Todd Kellstrom, a professor of environmental and occupational health for many years. He conducted a study which is called Heat Stress Impacts on Cardiac Mortality in Nepali Migrant Workers in Qatar. Rather than the traditional approach or the most common approach of most other media outlets who have been investigating migrant worker deaths, which primarily involves interviewing the families of migrant workers who have died... It actually took data from the, from the Doha weather station from 2009 to 2017. It took data from the Doha weather station for, from these eight years of average temperatures. It then compared this data with the death tolls of migrant workers that have to be reported, not the cause, but just the, the timing and ages of migrant workers from Nepal from the Nepali embassy. So what it, what it found is that the average cause of death from cardiac arrest, so from essentially from a heart attack, from people aged 25 to 35 globally is 15%. So 15% of people who die from the ages of 25 to 35 die from a heart attack. When it looked at the figures from Nepali migrant workers who were working in Qatar from, from these periods. During the cold season, it was 22%, which is already substantially higher than 15%. And during the hot season, which is when the Qatari government was warned Nepali or any workers should not be working um, at these times, was 58%. So it's more than three times higher than the global average of people dying from heart attacks at that age, at that age bracket. So the conclusion of the study is essentially saying that there is substantial evidence that these people who are young, 25 to 35, are dying from preventable deaths because they're working extremely long hours in extreme heat. So because the study links heat stress to cardiac mortality, it's showing that working in extreme heat during these times which have been recommended that they don't do has caused an abnormal amount of young people to die.
Unpaid wages are a common complaint in Qatar. Something problem, but everyone's no coming salary, hmm. no give money. Yes, Maybe two, uh, four months, three months, something. No, no give salary. Yeah, no give salary. See the beds and everything, it is like a trash town. This was where they were living. So many of them were deported actually. My name is Mustafa Kadri. I'm the founder and CEO of Equidem, which is a human rights charity. The motivation for people to travel to Qatar, and to be clear, this is 90% of the entire population of Qatar, so it's about 2 million people. It's an incredible statistic, is to leave poverty. They not only come from the poorest countries in Africa and Asia, but they would typically come from the poorest regions of those countries, Nepal, Bangladesh, Kenya, those sorts of places where... You know, these are very rich societies in terms of their culture. But in terms of poverty in particularly the regional and remote areas, you know, there's just no infrastructure, there's no jobs. So people are going to Qatar, like so many migrants do around the world, in the hope of a better life for themselves and their families. All our researchers in Qatar are migrant workers themselves. So that means that not only do they have a very unique perspective, but they're connected um, with other workers and the issues. They care about the issues in a way that no one else can. And so after 18 months of interviews, talking to close to a 1,000 workers, including 60 in a lot of detail, one-to-one, confidential, separate interviews, the picture is really stark. Across all eight of the World Cup stadiums, the workers who were constructing them were subject- subjected to forced labour practices They were charged illegal recruitment charges before they even came to Qatar. That left them financially crippled in what we call debt slavery. When they were working in Qatar, they faced persistent delays in being paid. They were made to work in the heat in the hottest times of the year, even though that's meant to be banned, increasing the risk of death and organ damage. They faced physical and verbal harassment, and they also complained about discrimination, meaning that based on person's nationality or the colour of their skin, they were given different wages or different quality of work. As someone who has researched Qatar now for 10 years, it was really shocking. We found that Tier 1 contractors, contracted by FIFA and its partners to build these stadiums, were actively seeking to hide their practices from the independent labour inspectors. So workers told us in graphic detail about how when inspectors were due to arrive at stadium sites, they would corral workers into buses, push them off sites. When workers found out about this, that the company was deliberately hiding them from the inspectors, the workers we spoke to said how they would hide inside the stadiums in the hope that they could actually get a chance to speak to these inspectors about how badly they're being treated. And when companies found out about that, they would actually punish workers. They would either fire them or deduct them pay, or threaten to do that. It's very clear. Workers are terrified. Even the most simple thing, like complaining about their food, they're worried about being punished. There are people in the government who's, who say frequently that there are reforms and there are people that are cracking down on these companies, but how are they able to, to do this, to essentially abuse workers right under the nose of FIFA and the government and the Supreme Committee? We know that there have been labour reforms. Legally, there have been changes to make it easier for workers to change jobs. They can now 
leave the country um, at their own will to increase the inspections and to monitor our workers getting paid, to set up a wage fund that has paid a lot of money to workers and to punish employers where they do the wrong thing. How many journalists are here? I've got about 400. I came here six years ago and addressed the matter of um, migrant workers straight on at my very first meeting. How many of these uh, European or Western business companies who earn millions and millions from Qatar or other countries in the region, billions every year, how many of them have addressed migrant workers' rights with the authorities? I have the answer to you. None of them. None of them. Because any change in the legislation means less profit. Instead of one billion, well, you maybe make only 900 million. But we did. And FIFA generates much, much, much less than any of these companies from Qatar. And we look at this issue of uh, migration and the situation of uh, hundreds of thousands of women and men from developing countries who would like to offer their services abroad in order to help and give a future to their families back home. Well, Qatar is actually offering them this opportunity. Hundreds of thousands of workers from development countries come here. They earn ten times more than what they earn in uh, their home country. And they help their families to survive. We in Europe, we close our borders and we don't allow practically any worker from these countries who, earn, who have obviously very low income to work legally in our countries, because we all know there are many illegal workers in our European countries living in conditions which are also not really the best. So I wonder why nobody recognize the progress that has been made since 2016. The kafala system was abolished, minimum wages were introduced, heat protection measures were taken, ILO, international unions, acknowledge that, but media don't. For hundreds of thousands of workers, the situation's improved. You know, they have more choice uh, when it comes to employers. They have better wages uh, if they've been impacted by the, the minimum wage that was introduced uh, over a year ago. There are more opportunities for workers to raise their voice. But there are many workers who have not yet fully benefited from the reforms. We still see cases where employers are retaliating against workers who wish to change jobs. We still see cases where workers are, have not been paid their due wages. Uh, we still see cases where domestic workers, for example, are not given the right uh, to a day off per week. So for sure there are still challenges when it comes to, to the full implementation of, of, of the law, but overall we can see that there is very much a positive trajectory. I think these, these reforms were 
inevitable at some point, and for sure the World Cup has accelerated them. We can see other countries in the region also undertaking reforms, but not many countries around the world are undertaking them at the same pace as they have here in Qatar. For us, the, the World Cup is not the fin finishing line. Uh, we are committed to working with the government of Qatar, and particularly the Minister of Labor, uh, to continue on this reform path uh, well beyond the World Cup. The government has asked the ILO formally to establish a permanent presence in the country. And it's not only the ILO. We know that the government is also establishing agreements with the international trade unions and with partner countries to ensure that this exchange of expertise and collaboration can continue beyond the World Cup. What you're finding is that this has been a top-down process. It's been a formal reform process without a wider social reform. And the biggest underlying problem for Qatar is the power imbalance. So whilst workers are 90% of the population from Africa or Asia, they have no social political rights. They have no stake in that society. If you're a worker in Qatar, you might stay there for two years, you might stay there for 30 years. You never have a path to citizenship. You're physically kept completely separate from the rest of the society. And the employer under law and in practice, even after the reforms, retains phenomenal power over your life. So what that means is that there is significant pressure on you to accept conditions that you would not freely accept. You know, in Qatar, it is a crime to peacefully protest. It is a crime to join or form a trade union. Workers don't have any kind of representation in the society. They don't have a seat at the table from an industrial relations perspective basically that despite the reforms, these are really only touching the surface. They're only getting to a minority of workers when human rights observers like Equidem document these issues and bring them to light. We obviously share them with the government, with the companies before we go public. They simply will say, well, we have a reform process. These things are now being addressed. We even have the Labour Minister of Qatar saying incredibly, look, we've done these reforms. If workers have a complaint, go and lodge your complaint, as if that alone is going to address the problems. Qatar has been trying to manage that perception rather than actually doing the difficult thing, but the needful thing of taking its society through a social reform process. That's what every society needs. That's what every society finds difficult. But if you don't go through that process, then sadly we can see from the evidence that we've gathered, you have a tournament built on modern slavery. 50 million people are in forced labor or forced marriage globally. These are men, women and children who are forced to work or to marry because of threats, violence, deception or abuse of power. An estimated 28 million people are in situations of forced labor. Modern slavery occurs in almost every country in the world. In fact, more than half of all forced labor occurs in upper-middle or high-income countries. Entrapment in forced labor can last years. Is Qatar a slave state? So I think that if we want to say that Qatar is a slave state, we have to say that our global economy is built on the back of modern slavery. And there's a simple basic understanding that you can make about it, which is to say that these workers who are modern slavery in Qatar and globally they're basically subsidizing the wealthiest businesses and people on the planet. You know, you think about our pension funds, you think about the billionaires, you think about the largest corporates. 
that they require these workers that since the pandemic, we call them essential workers. We need them to deliver our products, to man our hospitals, to teach our children, all those sorts of essential work. But we basically don't treat them with sufficient dignity. We don't pay them enough money. And that creates the conditions where they can be exploited because the demand, the pressure on the global economy transferred onto the labor market is such that you can then exploit these workers. So I would say it's a global uh, modern slavery crisis. It's not limited to Qatar. But what I'd also say is that if Qatar has consciously chosen to put the spotlight on the country to bring in tourists to build its global profile, which is absolutely fine, it's totally incumbent on them to decide that for themselves. There's nothing fundamentally wrong with that. But number one, you are going to have scrutiny in terms of your labor record. At the same time, this is a phenomenal opportunity and an opportunity that's being lost. I think that what's happened is there is such an obsession with control, with controlling narratives, controlling workers, controlling independent monitors, access to the country, such as people like us, rather than going, you know what, part of genuine reform is letting go, is mm -hmm. accepting that it has to be a much more rights-respecting democratic process. Now, we recognize Qatar is a very emerging society. It's rapidly changed in the last 40 years. That process of change for any society is not easy, and it takes time. But this is also an absolute monarchy, which has phenomenal control internally. So then you ask that question, is Qatar a slave state? I think that is too simplistic. But the reality is Qatar's reputation is one which would make lots of people conclude that it is. And that's something that Qatar should be very worried about. But also it's an opportunity, an opportunity that will really need to be grabbed in the years ahead as climate change, which is going to make the country uninhabitable, according to climate scientists, within the next few decades in a country that is actually per capita the greatest contributor to CO2 emissions in the world. So it's an opportunity. It's also a necessity that Qatar really needs to grapple with that rather than complaining that there are enemies of the state that are trying to undermine the society. You know, address the issues, go on that process, have an honest discussion. You know, Equidem, during the World Cup and after, we're tracking down what we estimate to be thousands of workers around the world who have returned from Qatar, who are currently in Qatar, that will be owed millions, millions, millions in compensation. Debt bondage is essentially uh, when a worker is promised a job, usually from overseas, they're asked to work that job and then they've, they're told, okay, you'll be earning this amount of money, let's say $1,000 a month, and then after 12 months, you'll be able to leave. They give their passport essentially to their employer once they arrive in the country or the region. And then once that agreed time is up that they've worked on, their employer will say, oh, actually, you've drunk this much water. You've paid, you, you, you owe us this much for rent. Usually, uh, if not always, that amount of money that they then owe equivalents to more than they've earned. So then they have to work off an infinite amount of, of labour and not actually earn anything for, for what they were promised to earn. So that's very common in the sex trafficking industry, but also... Um, among migrant workers, not only in Qatar, even in Australia. So one of the ways in which debt bondage is occurring is that once they get to uh, Qatar, they're working these jobs, they're earning a much lower wage than they were, they were originally promised. They are then being struck with 
uh, recruitment fees, which are just outrageously expensive compared to what they're earning. Four to five thousand dollars Australian for their recruitment fee, right? Which is obviously huge, even for people in Australia to pay that much to to just get their own job, essentially, especially when they're working in plus more than 50 degree heat. But when you compare that against how much they're earning, so a common hourly wage uh, for for migrant workers in Qatar building these stadiums has been reported to be 80 cents an hour. So if you do the maths on that, the 80 cents was actually being conservative. A lot lot of um, outlets were actually reporting it was to be around 30 cents an hour. It works out to be about one year of of labour to to pay off this debt of just your recruitment fee. So that's one way in which modern slavery is is occurring in Qatar for these for these workers. I'm Mani Saraswati. I am the editor at large and director of projects of migrantrights.org. The short form is MR. Uh, MR is a Gulf-based advocacy organization. Um, we do a lot of reporting and research on the issues pertaining to human rights of labor migrants, and we take a corridor approach. So we report from the Gulf, but also from countries of origin. And we do a little bit of grassroots work and grassroots advocacy, including a youth fellowship. Migrant Rights itself started as a blog to monitor media coverage around migrants and migration and the xenophobic narrative that is present in the local media. Uh, and to counter it. And then over the years, uh, it has developed into an independent uh, reporting and research platform. And we do do advocacy. We build our advocacy on our own reports, uh, engaging with various UN mechanisms and international forums. We've looked at the various parameters of forced labor and tried to address those issues in terms of the ground realities Uh, and how forced labor or human trafficking may look in the context of a Gulf country, Um, because many of the journalists come from, uh, are not very familiar with the cultural context and may not pick up the red flags that exist. So we try to highlight that. How do you think Qatar is doing in terms of public education when it comes to the issue of labor exploitation? There's no wider discussions on kafala or migration or the dependency Uh, on migrant labor in the country, I don't think that really exists. When we have these conversations, uh, it takes a while for people to stop being defensive and to really look at what's happening on the ground. Uh, I don't think it's with ill intent, right? Also, when they're looking at migrant workers and there is a problem, they look at it from a lens of charity. The rights-based approach still doesn't exist. So if you hear of a group of workers who've been stranded or who have been uh, in trouble, not paid, the community will come together to provide them food, to help them with tickets. But you don't see them really saying, okay, this is how I'm going to help you file a complaint to fight this battle, to hold your employer accountable. Those things don't exist. This is not just about Qataris, right? They're a minority in their country. You also find higher income migrants with privileged professionals from the West playing into this charity game where they would in no time be able to help a group of 100 with their food, but would hesitate to to give them the information required to actually take it up with authorities. So we need to relook that. Domestic workers are those who work within households. And across the Gulf, there's a huge dependency on domestic workers. 
because the tasks that they do in other developed countries, there may be social welfare protections like elderly care or child care or crash facilities that's easily accessible and affordable, right? Those things don't really exist in the Gulf. In Qatar, most domestic workers tend to be women working within households, cooking, cleaning, childcare, elderly care. Gardeners in private households also fall under this category of domestic work. So the dependency is pretty high. They are usually women from Asian countries, increasingly from Africa. In the last several years, we've seen more and more coming in from Uganda and Kenya and even Western Africa. Ethiopia is an older migration route primarily to Saudi, but now to the rest of the Gulf countries too. The Gulf is the largest receiver of migrant domestic workers in the world. Until 2015, not a single country had a law for domestic workers, and they were not included in the labor law. They were excluded from those laws. They were only governed by the immigration system, right? And the immigration system was outsourced to an individual household. The domestic workers law that do exist in these countries are not very robust, right? Very often, they are just glorified contracts, Workers are so invisible. You know, you just look at them in their pajamas if they're domestic workers, the pajamas that pass off as uniforms or the blue overalls and hard hats. You don't really view them as individuals with families, with aspirations. You either look at them as victims or a bit of a public nuisance. So you want them away once they're done with their work. You want them away from the city. This again, how do you humanize them? How do you Uh, have 1.5 million low-income workers in a country and not think of them as individuals with agency. With so many countries in the region that are effectively dependent on migrant labor and so many countries in Asia and Africa now dependent on these remittances, how do we clean up the system region-wide? I think first we need to push back against this dependency being one-sided. That is a worker coming from a poor country dependent on the remittance, their family being dependent on the remittance or those countries being dependent. It is true, but it's just one part of the truth, right? The dependency on migrant labor is so high in the Gulf. In places like the UAE, they comprise more than 92% of the labor market, over 85% of the population. So this dependency is going to be permanent. It's not going away anywhere. So we need to push back and really focus on how none of these Gulf countries, including the ones that have a large local population like Saudi or Oman, can really survive a day without the labor of migrant workers. You won't find too many citizens wanting to clean homes, serve people. They're always going to be dependent on them. The economy is always going to be dependent on low-income migrant workers. Unless we recognize that, we can't clean up the system. Unfortunately, the move now has been to look at voluntary pledges over binding commitments. There is an issue globally where Gulf countries are now not really recognizing the international human rights standards that exist for a reason, instead making voluntary pledges. Again, a lot of talk around recruitment, corruption, about workers being in debt even before they come to the Gulf, and where the focus is on corruption in the home countries because it's a brown or a black person being corrupt, right? But our research has shown that the corruption actually stems from the Gulf. The majority of the kickbacks 
come back to the Gulf to procurement offices, to local businesses, to local manpower supply companies. It is not just going to an agent, uh, a nameless, faceless agent in countries of origin. This corruption needs to be corrected. And lastly, businesses, the big businesses locally are powerful families across the Gulf, and they are not held accountable for poor practices. They keep winning new contracts, new tenders, even if they have a history of poor practices. So unless you clean up the business environment and hold employers and businesses accountable for the violations, you really can't protect the rights of the migrant workers. I think there is a responsibility of the very highly paid, extremely privileged Western migrant population that lives in these countries that undermine the problems faced by migrant workers there is some kind of an interna- uh, internalized racial bias, right? Because you just assume that if you come from a poor country, you deserve to be treated worse than me because I hold a passport or I look different from you. I think we need to question it. If you have so much privilege and power and social capital and you have a country you can go back to without really facing too much retribution, why would you then enable a exploitative system? When you work in human rights, as I have for over 20 years now, you've got to be an optimist. And there are two key drivers for that optimism. One is functional, because you obviously are dealing with some really awful things and you've got to really believe in the best of humanity. But the second reason is because you do see the best of humanity. All our work in Qatar is run by migrant workers. You know, these are low wage workers from really humble backgrounds who are, to be really clear, these are professional people. They are professionally trained have an expertise to safely, ethically talk to workers. And their effort really inspires me and the rest of the team that support them around the world to know that things can be changed. You know, I've worked in many contexts. I've worked on uh, Aboriginal communities with extreme poverty in Australia. I've worked on the awful treatment of refugees in detention in Australia. I've worked in Afghanistan, Pakistan, Nepal during periods of armed conflict. And whilst I've done a lot of research, which I think hopefully has had some kind of impact, there's have all been issues where I've felt that what we're doing is to document things to let people know what's happening. But I don't see a solution to this problem. In the Qatar context, I see there is a solution. It's really simple. Workers have been harmed in delivering this World Cup. Compensate them. Give them compensation for unpaid wages, for injuries, for deaths, for the harassment, the other harms that they have faced. And going forward, Qatar and FIFA, they must set up a migrant worker centre, a safe space for workers to talk about what they're facing and that have their representatives go and talk to employees, go and talk to the government about these issues and how they can be addressed. If the workers that we documented had that space, they could have said to that space, these powerful companies owned by the royal family are deliberately evading labour inspectors. They're hiding us from these inspectors. They did not do that until they spoke to our team under great effort in private conversations. If they had that centre, they could have done that. So there are solutions there. What we're dealing with people is here is simply human beings that are trying to do a better, get a, a better chance for their lives and their loved ones than they had back home. It's the most fundamental human 
instinct anyone can have. So in terms of solutions, there's concrete things for Qatar, but there's things as well about joining this up to this global issue that we're having right now, supporting each other to address these issues. And, you know, we will all benefit if we do the right thing. The Socceroos joined the call to establish a migrant resource center. We are not experts, but we have listened to groups such as Amnesty, FIFA, the Supreme Committee, the International Labour Organization, FIFPRO, and most importantly, the migrant workers of Qatar. We have learned that progress has been made both on paper and in practice. The kafala system has largely been dismantled, working conditions have improved, and a minimum wage has been established. Whilst the reforms established in Qatar are an important and welcome step, their implementation remains inconsistent and requires improvement. We have learned that the decision to host the World Cup in Qatar has resulted in the suffering and in the harm of countless of our fellow workers. These migrant workers who have suffered are not just numbers. Like the migrants that have shaped our country and our football, they possess the same courage and determination to build a better life. We stand with FIFPRO, the Building and Woodworkers International, and the International Trade Union Confederation seeking to embed reforms and establish a lasting legacy in Qatar. This must include establishing a migrant resource centre, effective remedy for those who have been denied their rights. The Supreme Committee told SBS, We have committed every effort to ensuring that this World Cup has had a transformative impact on improving lives, especially for those involved in constructing the competition and non-competition venues we are responsible for. Protecting the health, safety, security, and dignity of every worker contributing to this World Cup is our priority. The Qatari government's labor reforms are acknowledged by the ILO, ITUC, and numerous human rights organizations as the benchmark in the region. New laws and reforms often take time to bed in, and robust implementation of labor laws is a global challenge, including in Australia. No country is perfect, and every country, hosts of major events or not, has its challenges. This World Cup has contributed to a legacy of progress, better practice, and improving lives, and it's a legacy that will live long after the final ball is kicked. I'm very pleased. I don't know where the, you know, the text, I have it here. There was a demand somewhere about the center or whatever, because uh, workers don't know where to go if they have questions and if they need help. There will be an ILO permanent office which will serve exactly the purpose which was asked for to assist everyone who is here, show them their rights and remedies possible. Before we go, it's time to talk about puppies. If you're traveling to Qatar, consider supporting one of the local animal rescue organizations that are finding homes for thousands of dogs, cats, and other animals each year like beautiful Salukis or Persian Greyhounds. We brought two to Australia and can't imagine life without Bo and Joey. Qatar Animal Welfare Society, Cause, or Paws Rescue Qatar, Second Chance Rescue, and plenty others, rescue strays from off the streets or find them wandering the desert. They feed them, they give them medical care, and support them until they find a forever home. They're always in need of financial support, so even if you're not going, consider sending them a donation. And if you have space in your home and heart to help relocate them to your country, get in touch. 